Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 113, The Spring of Nations. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. We've got Knut Tangen, Christian Mullaly, Eric Drysdale, Vladimir Kantarov, and a pledge increase by Georgi Kudinov, as well as a donation by Ivo Ivanov. Apologies if I mispronounced anyone's name, but big thanks to all of you. And again, I have no idea how and why you all are being so generous in this crazy economic time, but I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. And uh, I hope all you listeners out there are doing well and you know, sending best wishes. Uh, at this time, it's you know currently mid-May of 2020, so this is a podcast from quarantine. But getting into it. Now, last time, we recovered from the resolution of the Eastern Crisis as foreign powers intervened to massively reduce the power of Egypt and to prop up the Sultan's rule in Constantinople. With his position thus secured, the young Sultan Abdul-Majid issued a declaration of new rights for the empire's population. However, for the new Tanzimat edict and the new era it began, well, there was little practical effect. As a result, revolts against the Ottomans continued with a major uprising occurring around Nish and three failed attempts at one in Braila in Wallachia. The Wallachian and Russian governments helped to crush these attempts. Meanwhile, the Bulgarian anger over Greek domination of the Orthodox Patriarchate continued. Now, first, let's pick up with our old friend, Georgi Rokovsky. Last we heard from him was 1842, and he was laying low in Marseille on the Mediterranean coast of France after fleeing imprisonment in Constantinople. He ultimately stayed there for about a year and a half before returning to Bulgaria. He first arrived in Athens before going to Constantinople, where he met with Neofit Bozveli and Ilalion Makariopolsky, who had recently returned from their own exile. Bozveli and Makariopolsky updated Rokovsky on their efforts to obtain an independent Bulgarian church. In Constantinople, Rokovsky also met with some men from Turnovo who invited him to come and teach there. Once there, Rokovsky got into a fight with the Greek bishop of the city who demanded Rokovsky present his educational credentials. Insulted, Rokovsky left and returned his native Kotel in the final days of 1843. However, There, his troubles only continued. Kotel was in the midst of a long, simmering conflict between its artisan workers and the Chorbajis, a.k.a. bosses. Remember, this term comes from a Janissary rank, meaning soup master, and in this case really refers to wealthy Christian peasants who held sway in certain towns like Kotel. The Chorbajis had taken control of town tax collection and were enriching themselves with it. Rokoski's father attempted to mediate, but got nowhere, so he left for the distant capital of Vidin and appealed to the Ottoman officials there, Vidin being the kind of administrative capital of that region. Concerned that their corruption would be revealed, the Chorbajis worked with the Greek church officials in Turnoval and Breslav, who shared the same concern, to quickly discredit Rokoski's entire family. They sent a letter to the sultan, stating, quote, There is a man 
called Toiko Popovich here in our homeland. He has attracted many people to his side. Every evening, he receives from five to ten people. His close relative, Captain Georgi Mamarchev, shares his character. He instigated a movement against the Empire in Ternovo. Many people were handled while he was sent to Istanbul, where he died in prison. At present, respected administrators, Stoiko has a boy named Sava, Rokovsky. He has been to Europe, yet now he has come back to ride a rouser, to brandish a sword and to curse the Turks, their kind and faith. Since the town folk cannot vouch for these people, we are not willing to have them among us. We bring this to your knowledge, state administrators, so as to prevent any further encroachments on our children and property. Please rid us of them. End quote. So, it's pretty unequivocal. Get rid of these guys. They're basically traitors. They're against the empire. They're against the Turks. They're against Islam. They're against all these things. Throw them in jail. Unsurprisingly, the Ottoman administration quickly took action, putting the region under more direct management, reinforcing garrisons, and arresting Rokowski and his father in the early days of 1844. After six months of enduring one of the capital's worst prisons, both men were put on trial and actually found not guilty. However, the Patriarchate once again intervened to ensure they would remain in prison, facing hard labor as their friends and allies worked to free them. In the meantime, Neofit Bozveli and Ilarion Makaropolsky were still hard at work advocating for an independent Bulgarian church. In 1844, they contacted a Polish agent working in the French embassy who told them to present their case to the port i.e. the Ottoman administration. They did, claiming that the Bulgarians were loyal to the Sultan and that their request was actually within Ottoman law. They asked for Bulgarians to be able to choose their exarch, found schools, publish newspapers and books, open a church in Constantinople, create courts in which the Bulgarians can air their grievances against Greeks, and a way for Bulgarians to appeal to the Sultan directly instead of only through the Patriarchate. These demands would serve as a basis for the national church movement, but for now, the Ottomans will consider them. But I think these demands are a good moment, a good kind of excuse to consider that officially, according to the kind of millet system, the way the Ottoman administration is functioning, there is no direct way for Bulgarians to really interact with the central Ottoman government and the sultan. The official intermediary is the patriarchate, which is dominated by Greeks and really doesn't seem to care very much about the average Bulgarian. So that is one of their main problems and why these two Bulgarians are fighting so hard for an independent church. It's not just about religion. It's very much also about sort of an independent political entity which can fight for Bulgarians and sort of advocate for them in Constantinople. Now, 1844 also saw progress being made in both the Bulgarian and the Ottoman national movements. In Bulgaria, Hristaki Pavlovich, a man from Dupnica we mentioned before who founded a girls' school in Svistov, published a Bulgarian history book, which was essentially a reworking of Paisi Hilandarsky's Slavo-Bulgarian history. In Kolofer, a man named Botio Petkov settled into a new job as a teacher. While he will play some role in the Bulgarian national revival, his yet-to-be-born son, Botev, will play a far greater role. On the Ottoman side of things, a national flag and anthem were adopted for the empire, bringing the Ottoman state further into alignment with these European norms. 
The first Ottoman census was also conducted and formal ID documents issued. Now, while the census only actually counted men, it was still a major step towards the Ottoman government being run as a you know, regular administrative state and less as a kind of late medieval feudal one. Now, in the early days of 1845, the Ottoman government finally had an answer for Bozveli and Makariopolsky. It agreed to their demands and formed a committee with representatives from all the major Bulgarian municipalities to finalize a text. By April, those representatives began to arrive in Constantinople. However, most actually opposed the reforms advocated by Bozveli and Makariopolsky. So why? Why were these representatives from all these Bulgarian regions against their demands largely centered around an independent Bulgarian church? Well, in a word or two words, the Patriarchate. Most didn't dare to oppose the powerful organization, and some, namely from Ternovo and Plovdiv, actually actively sided with the Patriarchate. Only the representatives from Schumann and Ruse actively sided with the reformers, Pozveli and Makariopolsky. So again, we're seeing the situation where the patriarchate is so powerful and is constantly using its power to prevent these kinds of reforms, such that even when Bulgarians are you know, really making some progress, it's still able to hold them back. Ironically enough, this is a bit reminiscent of what we talked about with the Greek Revolution, right? That the Greeks had all these internal conflicts amongst each other because so many Greeks really didn't want to abandon the old systems because, well, they benefited from those systems. So, you know, that's why I really want to kind of cover the Greek and Serbian uprisings in so much detail because we're seeing a lot of kind of touches on those. We're seeing a lot of connections to those in how these political events are playing out in Bulgaria. Still, despite the failure of this kind of gathering to create a new text everyone could agree upon, in June, Bozveli and Makariopolsky were empowered to represent the Bulgarian group in Constantinople. Bozveli then presented new arguments to the port about new Bulgarian desires in the church dispute. For the first time, they presented the idea of fixed salaries for patriarchate officials which would help combat corruption. Unsurprisingly, the Patriarchate by this point had had more than enough with all this talk of reform and anti-corruption and pulled out the big guns. They now demanded that Bozveli and Makariopolsky be exiled to Mount Athos once again. The power of the Patriarchate and Constantinople being what it was, this happened and the two were again forced to abandon their efforts. And yet, despite all these setbacks, despite the power of the Patriarchate, their demands had been heard. They had drafted texts which could serve as a basis for future church reform movements. So, you know, their failure wasn't a complete failure. They had laid vital groundwork. And that groundwork, that bedrock, would help to gain an independent Bulgarian church one day. And in the way they provoked the actions of the patriarchate, they also clearly demonstrated just how corrupt that organization had become. As with so many Ottoman institutions, it consistently showed that it was far more concerned with maintaining its own power rather than improving the conditions for the people it was responsible for. Still, 1845 saw more and more small pieces of progress in the Bulgarian Enlightenment, despite these setbacks. That year, 12 books and one magazine were published in the Bulgarian language, and, interestingly, 
an eight-year-old boy named Vasil Ivanov Tunchev began attending school in his hometown of Karlovo a year after his father's death. That young man didn't stay in school long, but his education was laying some of the groundwork for his eventual transformation into the revolutionary Vasil Levsky. But that was still far into the future. For now, Bulgarians would have to contend themselves with more incremental gains. 1846 saw the publication of the first Bulgarian newspaper. Published by Ivan Bulgorov in Leipzig, quote, the Bulgarian Eagle, end quote, uh, aimed to teach Bulgarians about their history and connections to the wider Slavic and European world. Remember, we've talked a little bit about building national consciousness and the fact that periodicals and things like newspapers are really vital for that because it's much easier to form a sense of nationhood if you're kind of getting information at the same time as other people and are being sort of informed about your connection to the wider world. So this encourages people to think beyond right their their village or their town and to think on a national scale. So it's interesting that the first Bulgarian newspaper, Bulgarian Eagle, really tackled that head on much, much more directly than most newspapers. And more and more Bulgarians were seeing this kind of wider world and increasing their consciousness of it. And well, Frankly, this was essential if Bulgaria was going to survive outside the Ottoman world. Groundwork had to be laid for an independent state. Now, remember, for comparison, the challenges that the Greek Revolution faced, where so few Greeks could even imagine an independent state, so few could imagine something beyond the Ottoman systems that their ancestors had known for centuries. Even beyond simple education, the knowledge that it was possible to live in a better-run society was needed for the average Bulgarian peasant to support a, any kind of national movement. Still, knowledge would only take things so far. Many simply had strong interest in maintaining the status quo, like the Chorbaji of Kotel, and many wealthy Bulgarians did side with the Ottomans against reform. But others supported it. Still, those supporters needed wealth they needed money to fund their efforts. Now, 1846 saw a blow to this as a fire swept through a wealthy neighborhood in Plovdiv, wiping out many local citizens, particularly wealthy ones, of course. But the wealth that could sustain a Bulgarian enlightenment could come from other places as well. That year, two programs were issued to Tsar Nicholas I of Russia by Alexander Exarch, which described how Russia could assist in the development of Bulgarian education. The Russian government was persuaded to give 10,000 rubles per year for Bulgarian schools in the Ottoman Empire. Now, in Tarnovo, the Patriarchate had succeeded in firing the Bulgarian Metropolitan and replacing him with his Greek predecessor in another setback for the movement for an independent Bulgarian church. Within two years, the two men would switch places again, really showing how intense the struggle was for these kinds of positions, and that neither side at this point could manage to hold on to the office for very long. Now, interestingly enough, the Sultan himself actually spent much of that year on a tour of the Empire's Balkan provinces, quite a departure considering how many of his predecessors basically never left the Imperial Palace. Though still just 23 years old, Sultan Abdul Majid was still a serious supporter of reform. However, as we're seeing, his administration is still largely siding with the Patriarchate in an attempt to balance what reforms the Ottomans want with their overriding desire to maintain control and ensure stability within the empire. Now, speaking of maintaining control, when he was back in Constantinople, 
Sultan Abdul Majid was visited by the elderly Muhammad Ali of Egypt. The powerful ruler had succeeded in gaining hereditary rule of Egypt for his family, but now, as he was turning 78, he was learning that establishing a dynasty is a bit more complicated than that. His son Ibrahim, who had led his armies against the Greeks and in Syria, was sick, and so he was panicking about the succession, telling the sultan, quote, My son Ibrahim is old and sick. My grandson Abbas is indolent. And then children will rule Egypt. How will they keep Egypt? End quote. Now, for those of you who don't know, indolent is basically lazy and obsessed with pleasure. So, in other words, after decades of work to establish a dynasty and build Egypt into a powerful state, Ali was watching it all crumble beneath his eyes. Worse for him, the Western powers had forced him to give up state monopolies and open Egypt to trade, which had helped balloon Egypt's debt. After returning to Cairo, Ali became increasingly senile and paranoid. His son traveled to Constantinople to request he be appointed the new ruler, but died shortly after returning. A few months after that, in 1849, Ali finally died at the age of 80, having ruled Egypt for 43 years. The state was now ruled by the 31-year-old Abbas I. And, well, just whether this indolent man would lead Egypt to independence or to fall back into an increasingly centralized Ottoman state remained to be seen. Now, 1847 saw Georgi Rokovsky and his father finally let out of prison after three and a half years of hard labor, after being, we'll remember, found not guilty. Interestingly enough, Rokovsky considered his time in prison to be kind of academy. While there, he improved his Ottoman language skills and then used them to submit legal requests on behalf of other prisoners in exchange for money. In this way, Rokovsky became deeply familiar with the Ottoman judicial system and set about becoming a lawyer once released. Uh, just for reference, you didn't need any specific education to do this within the Ottoman system, which is how you can go to prison and come out a lawyer. Working as a lawyer, Rokovsky quickly began to grow wealthy. But how he used that wealth to pursue his own revolutionary aims, well, we'll have to see. Elsewhere in 1847 saw the loss of one enlightener and the birth of another. Vasil Aprilov, who had founded a school in Gabrovo, died in Romania at 58, while the aforementioned Christobotev was finally born in Kalofar. The next year also saw the deaths of Neofit Bozveli in Athos and Christaki Pavlovich in Svistov. All that is to say, slowly the first generation of 19th century Bulgarian enlighteners and revolutionaries was dying, and a new one was rising up to take its place, emboldened by the groundwork laid by that first generation. In particular, I think the death of Bozveli is rather tragic, uh, that as far as he could tell, he had made very little progress in his life's work. But as we said, he did make crucial gains in the movement for Bulgarian rights and sort of greater independence within the Ottoman system. But still, some of that original generation was hard at work. In 1848, the surviving organizers of the Braila uprisings gathered in Belgrade to plan yet more anti-Ottoman activities. Well, their work paled in comparison to the revolutions that were sweeping Europe that same year. Now, 1848 is forever known as the year of revolution in Europe. Now, at this point, I'm going to step a bit out of the narrative to discuss some of the wider changes in Europe and what really gave rise to this incredible year. But as always, I think these greater European changes are going to factor 
heavily into both how the European powers really view the Ottomans and the Bulgarians in particular, but also some of the kind of ideological foundations of eventual Bulgarian constitutionalism and the first Bulgarian, the first modern Bulgarian state. Now, you'll recall that the Napoleonic Wars at the beginning of the 19th century resulted in the ultimate triumph of conservative forces over revolutionary liberalism, both within France and without it. Following that, the concert of Europe helped to keep the status quo and saw European powers cooperate to discourage any kind of revolution which might be inspired by their citizens. We saw this have an enormous impact on the Serbian and Greek revolutions, as well as contribute to the failure of several Bulgarian attempts. But by this point, the Napoleonic Wars had ended more than three decades ago, and much had changed. Just as in Bulgaria and the Ottoman realm, but far ahead of both, newspapers had increased literacy had led to a vast increase in political awareness. More and more Europeans had opinions about liberalism, nationalism, and socialism. Yet more were feeling dissatisfied with their arch-conservative governments and their absolutist monarchs. Though it wouldn't have an impact for some time, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels actually published the Communist Manifesto in this year, as the middle classes began to desire more political power to accompany their growing wealth and their working classes, well, they wish to have some power at all, in particular to combat the awful conditions which defined their urban existence. Well, in this broader political environment, a revolt was no surprise. And the first of those revolts began in Sicily in the early days of that year. Within weeks, it had spread to France, and by early spring to nearly every country in Europe. In particular, Paris, Vienna, and Berlin experienced dramatic events in this spring. In Paris, the monarchy was overthrown and replaced by the Second French Republic. However, this is the only real success of these movements. In Berlin and throughout Germany, the uprisings were also very nationalistic in character, and aimed at creating a united Germany out of the 39 independent states of the German Confederation. However, these movements were badly coordinated and ultimately defeated. Many of its leaders fled into exile, and the dream of united Germany was put on hold again. In Vienna, the Habsburgs feared these revolutions perhaps more than anyone. Their empire was full of Croats, Hungarians, Slovenes, Serbs, Ruthenians, aka Ukrainians, Czechs, Slovaks, Romanians, and Italians. Self-determination meant a change in government in a place like Paris, but in Vienna, it was an existential threat, as it would mean the end of the empire. The revolution there began with the Parliament of Lower Austria demanding the resignation of Prince Metternich, the arch-conservative and the architect of the post-Napoleonic European order. Metternich actually did step down and fled to London, where there was very little activity as the UK was already much more democratic than its continental neighbors, and so there was more of an outlet for unrest. Austrian Emperor Ferdinand I appointed a set of more liberal ministers, but by the fall of that year, they had already gone through five governments. Meanwhile, Hungarians held huge demonstrations for greater independence in Buda and Pest, at this point not yet unified into a single city. The emperor agreed, and Hungary was formed as its own independent state with its own parliament and constitution, but united with Austria in a personal union, as the emperor of Austria would also be the king of Hungary. Well, 
He'd already had that uh, title for a long time, but that's kind of how they played it. However, the Ban of Croatia and Dalmatia, remember a Ban was a kind of governor, Josip Jelasic, who was now suddenly under Hungarian authority, disagreed strongly with this and raised an army. The Hungarians asked for help from Vienna, who responded by telling the Hungarians that they were explicitly not allowed to raise their own army. So, by late summer, the emperor in Vienna installed a new conservative counter-revolutionary government in order to return order. Jelacic invaded Hungary in September. Meanwhile, the old emperor Ferdinand wasn't really all there mentally and was replaced by Franz Josef. But the Hungarians refused to crown him king of Hungary. Unsurprisingly, they're pretty angry at the Austrians for refusing to aid them against the bond of Croatia and Dalmatia. A new commander was sent to Hungary to take control, but he was immediately attacked and murdered by a mob. The emperor then dissolved the Hungarian parliament and actually named Jelasic as regent in Hungary. So, well, you can see where the emperor's kind of, well, where his loyalties lie. Now, at this point, unsurprisingly, relations between Vienna and Pest were breaking down and the emperor was refusing to compromise. The liberals in Pest tried to come to an arrangement, but time ran out when the imperial army took the city in the first days of 1849. Within a year, the Hungarians began a new rebellion against this new order. The minister, Lajos Kossuth, ran around the country recruiting soldiers, allowing the army to successfully defeat Croatian forces and then trigger another uprising in Vienna. The Austrians were now in a dangerous position and the empire resorted to requesting Russian assistance. More than a quarter of a million Russian soldiers came to the aid of the Austrians in restoring the conservative order. Again, remember, there was a special, I forget the name of it off the top of my head, the Three Emperors Alliance or the Holy Alliance, something like this, between Prussia, the Austrian Empire, and Russia. All three were arch-conservative states and believed in absolute monarchy and were willing to assist each other in keeping that the case. So this is a case where, again, it's interesting. I mean, the Russians are aiding, you know, some Bulgarian schools. They're, they're doing a few things to like, you know, they, they've encouraged the Serbians in some ways with the revolution and things, but they are still believers in absolute monarchy and the status quo. Now, during this time, while no revolutions broke out in the Ottoman Empire, well, there were liberal uprisings in Wallachia and Moldavia, which were actually directed against the Russian-backed administration there. Russia had been, as we know, kind of gradually growing its authority in Wallachia and Moldavia, refusing to allow changes to the principality's fundamental laws without both Ottoman and Russian agreement. But many young boyars and people from outside the boyar class had now studied abroad and were familiar with European liberalism. They wanted an independent republic which would unite Wallachia and Moldavia. Their first uprising began in April 1848 in Moldavia, but Russian threats enabled the leaders there to resist any reforms. In Wallachia, a secret society called the Brotherhood, modeled after the Freemasons, issued a series of proclamations and organized an uprising in June of 1848 after hearing word of what had been going on in the rest of Europe that spring and inspired by the recent failed effort in Moldavia. Armed peasants began to take towns and the leaders established a provisional government. Soon, they had passed a series of reforms, but infighting quickly took hold. Soon, coups further disrupted the government and, despite popular backing and many successes, it looked weak. 
Taking advantage, Russia stepped in and got the Ottomans to agree to allow an intervention. A Russian invasion restored the existing order in Moldavia in June 1848 and in Wallachia in September. While the aforementioned events in the Austrian Empire were still ongoing, efforts at revolution and reform within the principalities was effectively crushed. Now, all that is to say, by the end of 1849, the revolutions of 1848 were indeed crushed, and the conservative order returned nearly all of Europe, again with the exception of France, where a second republic had been established. However, these events inspired a generation that still believed reform was possible. And as we'll see, that refor- those reform-minded leaders of 1848 did ultimately gain most of what they were aiming for in the coming decades. But for the Ottomans, this was a chance to study how to effectively break and defeat a liberal movement. These were lessons that they would take and apply to the Balkans. Thus, while Bulgaria did not participate in the so-called Spring of Nations, the Spring of 1848, it would ultimately bear the brunt of the lessons learned by the established order. Next time, we'll pick back up with the ongoing Bulgarian Enlightenment and see the concert of Europe badly shaken by 1848 finally come crashing down as a major conflict comes to Europe for the first time since Napoleon's era. Don't miss it. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com, and you can see the accompanying images, um, timeline, all that kind of stuff in the link in the description of this podcast episode, so check that out. Thank you all, and I'll see you next time.